Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. A closer look at 12 ordinary men. Um, the last time we were together, we were spending some time talking about the calling of these 12 ordinary men. And we went through the fact that their calling actually occurred in phases. And we talked about the phases, there were actually four of them. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. So, since you do remember that, what is the first phase of their calling? Okay, calling to conversion, that's correct. What was the second phase? Calling to ministry, okay. What was the third phase? Calling to, oh, see, you guys are really listening. This is encouraging my heart. Okay, and the fourth phase was? To martyrdom, exactly. And we really talked about how martyrdom is, you know, because it's not a term we use a lot, um, but <laughs> it actually means the condition, sufferings, or death of a martyr, extreme suffering and torment. And we talked about how these 12 ordinary men actually did encounter those things because, you know, all of them, with the exception of one, and we already know what happened with Judas Iscariot. That was, you know, because he chose to do what he did, he ended up going and hanging himself because of his betrayal of Christ. But for the others that remained, all of them with the exception of John actually were killed just because of their testimony. Um, and then John ended up being exiled and <laughs> ended up on the tiny island of Patmos, which when you think about it, that's not like this wonderful, glorious life. So all of them truly did suffer and they really were considered martyrs all for the sake of the gospel. And we did kind of remind ourselves how we should be very encouraged because we're not asked to do that. I mean, you know, we do not have to, like how I said even in my opening prayer, we can be grateful that we can gather together like this and be able to study the word. We don't have anybody with guns trying to attack us or kill us or we don't have to sneak in to hear the word or anything. And that's a real freedom and luxury that, you know, sometimes we kind of take it for granted. But when you think of these 12 ordinary men, they truly gave the ultimate sacrifice just for the sake of the word. Now, we also talked about how Jesus, when starting his ministry, it wasn't this little easy cakewalk either. I mean, he was the son of God who took on flesh and became the son of man, but he went through a lot to bring forth the gospel as well. You know, because sometimes we don't really talk about that. We just think of his sovereignty and we just think he just came and just, you know, like, okay, he just blessed people and he healed them and there were miracles that were performed and, you know, like maybe we think everything was easy. No, it was not. He went through a tremendous amount of persecution. And the thing that we always have to remember is that we are not better than the Lord. So if we hit a little snag, and it seems like things are a little tough, like, you know, they may be giving you a little bit of a challenging time on your job or maybe in your community or your building or whatever. You don't just give up and fall apart and have a fit because you are not better than the Lord. So if anything, it should be very encouraging to you. Um, one of the things that we also had come up in a question toward the end 
of our lesson last week, but then I have people contacting me and I have people talking to me about this issue and I'm going to spend some time on it because I think it's very valuable and important. And the question that was presented to me was, because I'm, okay, let me back up. I am through this series wanting us to take these 12 ordinary men and put it in juxtaposition to our own lives so that we can learn experientially through them. Correct? Okay. So we talked about their calling, and I'm always telling you, not just in this series, but that all of us are called here for a purpose. None of us are a mistake. None of us are just, you know, here to just go to work, punch a time clock, get our little money to pay our bills, and that's it. You're called for a unique purpose that only you can fulfill. So with that in mind, what had been posed to me, the question from several people that were posed to me was, what happens if you've been doing something for years and years and years, and it just doesn't seem as if you are where you need to be? Or it's like, are you missing the calling? Like, you know, maybe you really weren't called to that. How do you know? Because, you know, sometimes you may, a person may be involved in, say, doing this for over 10 years, over 20 years. And, you know, as with anything else, life is but a vapor, so you don't want to spend 50 years on something and then find out, oh my goodness, that wasn't what I was supposed to do. And then I shared my own personal testimony with you of the Lord making very clear to me what I was supposed to do when I was 28 years old, and it took 22 years for me to get the message thoroughly and have it manifest. And I explained how, in my particular situation, what God had suggested, what he told me, he was very clear because he was in an audible voice. I just kept thinking, okay, I know this is God, but really? <laughs> you know, Meaning I kept putting my own inadequacies in front of his instruction because I just didn't see it possible because I was really bringing God down to my little, I don't want to say, well, it wasn't infantile in a way because I was a baby Christian, but my little finite wisdom of seeing things instead of learning that I had to trust the, the infinite wisdom of God and just go ahead and do what it is that he said to do. Um, but I learned, and that's the good news. I didn't give up, praise God, and he's so merciful. <laughs> so I figured it out. But here is the thing, and this is, this is the interesting little part, and this is not something that I've heard a lot. So I'm gonna assume that I'm not the only one who hasn't heard this a lot. So this is what I'm going to share with you. When God has placed a specific purpose or calling on your life, it, the same way that with these 12 ordinary men, it came in phases and our calling and purpose may also come in phases those phases may also come with specific instruction because you need instruction to be able to go to the next phase, correct? But here's the part that's not always taught. We're taught academia. You go, you get books, you get knowledge, you figure things out, you help yourself. You can go to any bookstore, which I know people don't frequent as much, or any library, they have a whole what, self-help, section where you can go to try to help yourself learn how to figure something out. Okay, and I'm not knocking that because there's knowledge in that. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. However, if God has placed a specific calling and purpose on your life, he is the one who created you and created that particular purpose. So 
logically, even if you don't look at it from a spiritual standpoint, it would make sense that you get the instruction from the creator, not from some self-help book or you using, like I did, okay, your little finite knowledge to try to figure it out. But this is the part. When I'm standing before you, when Minister Scott is standing before you, when most people who are teaching the word here in this particular um, congregation, we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit as we're teaching. All of this, you know, you see all these pages? Yeah, I did my work, okay? So I'm not standing up in front of you coming here, you know, shooting from the hip because I have nothing prepared. But a lot of what I share with you, including what I'm sharing with you right now, is not in these pages. The point being is the Holy Spirit is giving me what it is that he wants shared with you, his people. But what isn't taught and what people sometimes don't think about is that same office of the Holy Spirit applies to each and every one of us in each and every facet of our lives. So for instance, you may be wanting to do whatever, you know, God may have given you a purpose and said, okay, you're working right now at this specific job. However, I want you to write a book on a specific subject matter. And you're like, what? You know, first of all, you might not even like writing that much, or you might not even, or maybe you do, but most likely you might not like it, okay? Like, I am a person who is extraordinarily shy. I know. Most people would never know that because they think, oh, oh, I'm so outgoing. I'm up here talking in front of people. Are you kidding me? This is the anointing of God. Iva would rather be sitting somewhere in the back, in the corner. You don't know I'm here. That's what I am comfortable with. But God had a different plan. So all I'm saying to you is he may have a different plan. He may give you something to do that you think is like, oh, my goodness. Learn from my experience. Don't take that plan that you think is just so huge and discount it, but rather turn and say, okay, Father, you've shared this with me. You want me to do this. Now I'm relying on what? The Holy Spirit, who is what? Our strengthener, our standby, our advocate, the one that's going to help us allow him to show you one step at a time what it is you're supposed to do. When you, because here's what it is. I know in the city everything is pretty much, you know, mass transit. But if we have any drivers here and you drive a car, they have what are known as yellow signs called yield. You have to pause when you get to an intersection with a yield sign. It is telling you, no, you don't just go because you feel like it. You've got to stop, look around, pay attention to the traffic, and then you can enter into where you want to go when it is safe and okay for you to do it. You must yield, okay? Well, we need to yield to the Holy Spirit on a continuous basis because when you yield to the Holy Spirit, then he can give you whatever instruction you need to be able to accomplish that purpose that God has placed in you. And that's not something we spend a lot of time talking about. So that's why I'm mentioning it to you because the same way I stand before you and trust me on this, I say it in my opening prayer every single time I stand before you, but I say it before I even get up here. I am relying 
on the Holy Spirit of God to make what he has placed, this work, come across where you can understand it and it's clear and to say what it is that he would have me say, forget me, because it's not about me. But the point is, we all have to do that. It's not just the people who get to come and teach. I mean, okay, it doesn't matter. Meaning I have to do it if I'm at home. Perfect example. Why am I sharing this? But okay. Again, he makes me he makes me stand before you exposed. The things I say, I'm like, really? For instance, we all know I love Christmas. That's a fact. See, God knows that. He placed that in me. Okay. Today's date is what? Okay. So that means we have 12 days left. 12 days. In the natural, I am so not ready. I mean, my shopping is done, but I shop online, which means when they deliver it, it comes in what? Boxes. My living room looks like a warehouse. I have to put up a Christmas tree. My deadline is Saturday. I, in the natural, have no idea, but it's not about me. So it's like, God, you're going to give me the energy, the strength, the wherewithal. Maybe the angels are going to come and help. I don't know. I've been asking those angels to vacuum for years. It hasn't worked yet, but they're going to have to help me because i got to get ready in 12 days because they're not changing the date, okay? So all I'm saying is even in that instance, I have to rely on the same Holy Spirit to direct me so that I am making wise decisions, so that I know what it is that I need to do, what my next step is, because the goal is on the 25th, this got to get done. It has to be ready. Everything has to be like a Folgers commercial. Okay, so for me, it has to be set. And it will be, because he manages to do it every year. But what I'm trying to say to you is, with everything, You've got to apply the Holy Spirit to every single facet of your life. Now, the other thing that I really highly suggest, which again, people don't always talk about. We all know the scripture that says, call those things that be not as though they were. We all know that, we all talk about it, we all recite it, and it's a beautiful scripture. We forget or we don't apply the word to that first word of call. In other words, if Jillian is in the office over here in the back. And I don't have a microphone, and I'm just talking normally and whatever. But I really want to ask Jillian a question. How is she going to know? I would need to maybe say, Jillian, OK, I'd have to call her okay, to come here so that we could talk about whatever it is, and vice versa. If she wanted me to do something, she'd have to say, Iva, how am I going to know? We're not." You know, I mean, I mean, of course, the Holy Spirit could tell us, but I'm just saying, for the purpose of this, you need to call it into existence. That's the point. Call those things that be not as though they were, which means, yes, you are exercising your faith, but you are also calling healing to come forth, if that's what you're believing for. Calling money to come forth, if you're believing for finances. Calling your family member's salvation, if that's what you're believing for. Not just thinking about it. Praying about it, yes, is important, but calling those things that be not as though they were. Now, these seem like real simple things, and they are, but until you really get it and apply it to your life, it makes all the difference in the world. And I want you to know, I mean, I do stand before you and share everything, because I want anything that I know works, 
and I've done it, I want to share that with you because maybe it might give you a different perspective or maybe you never thought about it. Maybe you hear calling those things that be not as though they were and never think of that calling part as, as anything in particular. But we already know that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And anything that God wants to happen, he does what? He speaks it first into existence. If he doesn't speak it, it doesn't happen. So if you are believing for your finances, you better call the money forth. If you don't, oh well. Okay, because God has done all that he's going to do. You've got to do the rest. So we just have to learn these little things and make these little tweaks. Okay, so hopefully that helped. Again, wasn't in my uh, notes, but blame it on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, now let's get back to these uh, 12 ordinary men and exactly what was happening in the ministry of Jesus. Now we already know that the Pharisees, because we talked about this last week, the Pharisees were giving him a hard time. The scribes were giving him a hard time. We got that. They complained when his disciples plucked heads of grain to eat them on the Sabbath. This is exactly where we left off last week. They opposed him for healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath as well. One thing after another, Luke, who does a very good job of recounting the incident and highlights the growing opposition of the religious leaders. The conflict reaches a high point when you go to Luke's gospel, if you read chapter six, verse 11. The scribes and the Pharisees were filled with such rage and they literally discussed amongst themselves what they might do to Jesus. That this was something that was very real to them. And if we check out the accounts of Mark and Matthew, we find that they're a little bit more graphic. They report that the religious leaders actually wanted to destroy, and that's a very strong word, destroy Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 12th chapter, and we're going to look at verse 14. Matthew 12, looking at verse 14, I'm going to share it with you out of the Amplified, and it says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, meaning Jesus, discussing how they could destroy him. The Living Bible says it this way. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot Jesus's arrest and death. And then the easy to read says, but the Pharisees left and made plans to kill him. See, the thing I like about this, and I like even about this study, we always see, um, you know, you see it in film, you see it represented all the time when Jesus goes before a Pontius Pilate and you know, we know that the people had something to say and then he went and he was crucified. But they don't spend a lot of time on this point. That didn't just happen, you know, just like, okay, that day this just happened. The Pharisees were behind all of this. What is the backstory? The backstory is not represented that much in film. You know, they kind of gloss over it. In church, they gloss over it. That's why we're here. That's why we have Bible study. So we get to the backstory of everything. And I, and I find it personally very exciting. If you look at Mark's gospel, look at Mark's gospel, the third chapter, and we look at verse six, the Amplified says, then the Pharisees went out and immediately, immediately began conspiring to the Herodians to plot against him as to how they might fabricate, this is ridiculous, but this sounds almost like today, fabricate some legal grounds to put him to death. Now, the Herodians were a secular political party of the Jews, by the way, that strongly supported Herod, you know, from Rome and all the rest of that. That was their job. 
Um, the Pharisees and Herodians set aside their religious and political differences to actually form a conspiracy. They just had such evil in their hearts that they were actually going to see what could they do just to plot and destroy Jesus. Hmm. The Living Bible says, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the Herodians to discuss plans for killing Jesus. These are actual words, killing him in scripture. Um, and the easy to read says, then the Pharisees left and made plans with the Herodians about a way to kill Jesus. Mark describes how the religious leaders even included the Her Herodians, as we just read, in their plot. And they were a political faction, as I said. And they supported the dynasty of the Herods. Because if you really go back and go into the history, which I'm not going to do, you can do that on your own time, you will really see exactly what they were trying to create during that part of time or portion of time in history. They normally didn't even ally themselves. They were not allies with the Pharisees, but the two groups decided to join together just to be in collusion against Jesus. And we are seeing things like that happen in our own political climate today. You will see people who want to have something accomplished. They will actually, you know, it could be something that's not good. They'll join forces just to make sure that it's done. And this, these two groups of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, were actually making plans to murder Jesus. It is at this precise time that Luke interjects his account of how the 12 ordinary men were chosen and appointed to be apostles. Hatred for Jesus escalated to a fever pitch. He was dealing with hostility from the religious leaders considered elite, and Jesus could already feel the heat of his coming death. Now, I'm going to pause here. This is something that if you know people who are born again, who love God, they can usually get a glimpse of when they're about to leave here and go to glory. A lot of them will tell you, I'm not going to be here that much longer. Or, you know, they'll tell you. Like one of the most beautiful speeches that um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. ever gave was his mountaintop speech. He knew that his time, now granted, he had people, he could have been a martyr, just like, you know, these, these 12 ordinary men. He knew he had people on his heels. But the point was he knew his time was very, very limited. And that's, again, where we need to rely, again, and you can rely on the Holy Spirit. You will know. You will actually know. He will give you a way of knowing. And, of course, Jesus knew. So in that, with him knowing, uh, the crucifixion was now, around this time when this is happening and he's knowing, the crucifixion was actually less than two years away. He already knew that he would suffer death on the cross, he knew this, and that he would rise from the dead. And that, after 40 days, he would ascend to his father. Importantly, he knew that his earthly work would have to be handed off to someone else, just like a grandmother who knows that she's about to go and be with the Lord may want to hand things over to her daughter or her granddaughter because she knows what is about to come. The time had come to select and prepare his official representative. Jesus chose 12 key men to carry out the proclamation of his gospel for the salvation of Israel and the establishment of the church. Time was critical. There were not that many days to accomplish this. Actually, it was only about 18 months by most estimates before his earthly ministry would actually come to an end. Now he had to choose his apostles 
and their most intensive training would begin immediately, as it had to be completed really within a matter of months. He knew he didn't have that much time. The focus of Jesus's ministry changed at this point from the multitudes to just a few. Another interesting point to note is that when Je Jesus chose these 12 men to be his actual official representatives, preachers of the gospel who would carry both his message and his authority, he didn't choose a single rabbi. He didn't choose a scribe. He didn't choose a Pharisee. He didn't choose a Sadducee. He did not even choose a priest or anyone associated with the religious establishment. Now see, that to me should be extreme encouragement to each and every one of us. Because so often people don't want to share the good news of Jesus because they feel, well, I don't know enough scripture and I don't know exactly where to point them to. And suppose I give them the wrong scripture to go to and all of the thoughts, ideas, and suggestions that the enemy will do because what is the enemy ultimately trying to do? Keep you from sharing with other people. But this is what I want you to think about. If you go to your favorite restaurant and they have, oh, I don't know, some wonderful dessert or a wonderful meal that you just think is fantastic, you don't have, the, you don't have any challenge with sharing that with somebody. You may not know how they made the pound cake or the banana pudding or the chocolate mousse. You have no clue. You just know it was fantastic. And you will share it with everybody how wonderful it actually is. But when it comes to Jesus, oh, well, I'm not exactly sure. Is it Romans 10? Where am I supposed? I don't know. So I'll just keep quiet. And then you get the sad news that that person, for whatever reason, left this earth realm. And you have no idea whether or not they ever had the opportunity to accept Jesus. And you could have spent time with them just sharing. Because here's the thing you have to remember. You may not remember all of the, the scriptures. You may not know one, but you know Jesus. You know he did something different in your life. So you know what? You could just simply share that with them. And then figure out, you know, they'll figure out the Holy Spirit. You'll be amazed. Because the Holy Spirit will bring back to your remembrance every single scripture you've ever heard or read. And he'll do it in an instant because you are doing what he's called you to do. Because we are first and foremost, what? Representatives of the kingdom, ambassadors for Christ. So that should encourage us to know that he will fill our mouth. He will give us the words that we need to speak. Every single person that's in your family, you should not be wrestling over the fact of whether they are born again or not. You should simply share and then believe God for the harvest. If they don't do it instantly right then, that's okay, because remember, God's not bound by time. But still share it, plant that seed, and then believe that other people will come across and water the seed so that you will be able to see and experience the harvest. But the key is, you gotta still plant the seed. So, the choosing of these 12 ordinary men was a judgment against institutionalized Judaism. It was a renunciation against those and their organizations, which had really become totally, excuse me, corrupt. This is exactly why Jesus did not choose 
one recognized religious leader. Instead, he chose men who were not theologically trained. A fisherman, yeah, right. A tax collector and just plain ordinary men like you and me. Jesus had been at war with those who considered themselves religious nobility of Israel. Just like we know a whole lot of people who, you know, think that they're way up here and all the rest of us are way down here. Okay, they resented him. They rejected him and his message. Plain and simple, they hated him. John's Gospel states it like this. Turn with me to John's Gospel, the first chapter. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12. John's Gospel, the first chapter, verses 11 and 12, and we're going to share this out of, I'm going to share it with you out of the New King James Version first. And it says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. This is a very, very wonderful scripture, and it's one that we use here even when we're sharing um, with people who have come forward for salvation. Because another horrible trick of the enemy is he wants people to believe that they are not worthy, that there's some reason why, you know, they cannot become children of God. So it's like <clears throat> salvation would not work for me because, you know, I still drink or I still smoke or I was out at the club last week and I don't know, I, I want to go there again and blah, blah, blah. This puts it and makes it very clear to them that if you receive him, if you believe him to be your Lord and Savior, you have the right and the privilege to become a child of the Most High God. So that just kind of like puts that to bed. Now, if you look at it in the Amplified, which of course you know I like because it's a qualifier, it says, he came to that which was his own. Here's the qualifier. That which belonged to him, his world, his creation, his possession. And those who were his own people, the Jewish nation, did not receive him and welcome him. But to as many as did receive and welcome him, he gave the right, the qualifier, the authority, the privilege to become children of God. That is, to those who believe in, this is the qualifier, what does it mean to believe? To adhere to, to trust in, and rely on his name. Love it. Then if you look at it really briefly in the Living Bible, it says, even in his own land and among his own people, the Jews, he was not accepted. I'll pause here. That also should encourage us because you may go to the family reunion with your family and they may be sitting there talking about you and calling you everything but a child of God and thinking you are complete, you know, whatever. Don't, again, you almost need to write this on a card, put it in your wallet, put it somewhere. You are no better than our Lord. So if they feel that way, don't let it bother you. They don't know any better. Love them anyway. Love them past their ignorance and realize you are not better than the Lord. And if they said that and felt that about him, so what if they feel that about you? Your job is only to share the good news of Jesus. If they don't want to receive it, share it in love. If they don't want to receive it, that's their that's their choice, but at least you did your job of making sure that you did share it. Okay, so picking back up. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. All they needed to do was to trust him to save them. That's absolutely all we ever need to do. So the core group that did not accept him and rejected him were the Jewish religious leaders. 
Now, one of the first official acts of Jesus' ministry occurred roughly a year and a half before this account that I just gave you, okay? So rewind, about a year and a half before. During the one time of the year when the city was most populated with pilgrims, which is just people, coming to offer sacrifices, Jesus challenged Israel's religious establishment. I mean, why not? I mean, if you're going to do it, if you're going to go hard, just do it, you know, make a big deal. Okay, he challenged them on their own turf in Jerusalem during the Passover. Now, many of us are familiar with the story, okay? He went to the temple and made clear his position, okay? Now, one of the things I want you to keep in mind is that during Passover, I want you to, to imagine this. Uh, okay, they have vendors that are in the temple. Now, they're profiting from the sale of certain animals for sacrifice, because remember that was something that they had to do during that time. They had to come and sacrifice animals. Everything was about sacrifice, okay? So they were actually realizing, okay, this is what people need, so we're gonna bring these animals and everything in here, and we're gonna charge them to be able to utilize them. In addition to that, they also exchanged foreign or pagan coins for temple currency, because temple currency was approved by the priest to present as offerings. So I want to give you, because sometimes when this story is told, or at least for me, I just thought, well, okay, they just have people in there like a flea market or something, and they're just, you know, in there selling, you know, whatever they, Avon of the time, you know, whatever. No, we needed to understand why they were there. They were there, and that makes it even a little bit more aggravating, because they were really for lack of a term, pimping the people, because they knew that the people needed certain currency to please the priest. They knew that the people needed these animals for sacrifice, so they're going to make it readily available for them to have it, and that's what probably just infuriated Jesus to no end. But I wanted to set that up because you needed to me to understand that. So turn with me to John's Gospel, the second chapter, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. This is John 2 verses 13 through 16. If we look at it in the Amplified, it says, now the Passover of the Jews was approaching. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple, which of course was an enclosure, he found the people who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at their tables. Now I'll pause here. Now that I've explained it, we better understand about the money changers. Like what, what did that really mean? Okay, so now we know. Verse 15, he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Then to those who sold the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of commerce. Oh. Now, if we look at it in the message, <laughs> they do it a little bit different. I like this one. It says, when the Passover feast celebrated, when the Passover feast, which is celebrated each spring by the Jews, was about to take place, Jesus traveled up to Jerusalem. He found the temple teeming with people, selling cattle and sheep and doves. The loan sharks, this is interesting, the loan sharks were also there in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and the cattle 
upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. Meaning to me, it makes it more vivid, like you can really, really get it and see it. Now in doing this, understand, do you think the people were happy with him? And no. He struck a devastating blow at institutionalized Judaism, okay? He revealed the religious nobility as thieves and hypocrites. He exposed and condemned their spirituality, I love this, as bankrupt. See, that's really interesting to me because here at the teaching ministry of Apostle Frederick K.C. Price, we learned the importance of our relationship. We are not bound with religious ties, you know, like we don't sit here and say, well, in order for you to pray, you must have your head covered or you cannot, or you can't come in and sit next to your brother in Christ. All the ladies have to sit on one side, all the men have to sit on another side. Um, we don't say if it's hot and it's the summertime, you have to wear three quarter length sleeves or you know short sleeves at best. Don't you dare come in with like a cap sleeve on. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. We don't sit up and tell you if you have on pants, you are a harlot, okay? You, I mean, no, but, but see, we chuckle at these things. But there are churches all across America to this day, all of those things are apparent, okay? I mean, you know, for you to wear lipstick, you must be really walking the street at night, okay? Uh, this is what people believe. <sighs> so the great news is we understand it's not about religion, it's about relationship. But there's still a lot of our brothers and sisters who are held bound because they don't know all of these things. But that's what Jesus did. So that's why he could really think of their spirituality as being bankrupt. Because in these, these particular religions who do this, some of these same people are dying at this moment, leaving this earth before they have to, because they do not know that healing is for them. And they literally think that they're suffering for the Lord and they die. There are people who are poor, who are barely feeding their kids, who are just hoping that whatever they can get will trickle down to them, you know, because they feel like, well, I'm poor, but I am just living for Jesus. Okay, that's not, that's not what the word says, but they don't know. And it's so sad because it leaves them spiritually bankrupt. But understand, this didn't just happen in 2018, okay? It goes all the way back to these thousands of years ago, okay? So we can see that. That's why they say to us all the time, there's nothing new under the sun, okay? Anything that you're seeing right now, you can open up the scripture and find it, okay? It's nothing new. You know, what's going on right now, it's not new. It is just another rendition of the same old thing. So we can be encouraged by that. So he exposed them for that. He publicly rebuked them. Now, I think this is what really got them, got their dander up. Because nobody likes to be embarrassed out in front of everybody, okay? And Jesus did that. He made clear their gross corruption and deception. Now, I think that's interesting, because that's sort of going on right now, too, okay? <laughs> a lot of stuff that was done in the dark that everybody thought they were getting away with, now a light is shining bright on it. And oh, we're seeing some things now. I think it's very interesting, I really do. This is how, though, Jesus began his ministry. 
It was an all-out assault on the religion of the Jewish establishment. Again, that's not something that a whole lot of people spend a lot of, a lot of time talking about, but that's actually how he began his ministry. Now, many months later, at the height of his ministry in Galilee, far removed from Jerusalem, the resentment that existed at that first event had reached a fever pitch. The religious leaders wanted to destroy Jesus and began to devise a scheme to actually, actually execute him. Their rejection of Jesus was clear and it was evident. They were hostile to the gospel that he preached. They despised the doctrines of grace that he stood for. They also despised the repentance that he demanded, looked with outrage upon the forgiveness that he offered, and rejected as having no authority the faith that he represented. I'm going to repeat that, because that was really, I think it was good, <laughs> OK? They were hostile to the gospel that he preached. That's number one. They despised the doctrines of grace that he stood for. They also despised the repentance he demanded. And they looked with outrage upon the forgiveness that he offered and rejected as having no authority the faith that he represented. Now, if we really stop and think about that and break it down, you can see the enemy all through that because this is the same thing that the enemy tries to do right now here today with each and every one of us, with every single thought, idea, and suggestion that he places in your head. He does not want you to have faith. He wants your faith to be weak. He wants it to be watered down. In addition to that, he doesn't ever want you to think that you are thoroughly forgiven. Do you know how your mind, which is why he did that series, that actually is a series that I highly suggest have nothing to do with me, because it's not about me. You should go back and revisit that, the mind, the arena of faith, because there is so much that's said in that, so many different layers in that. Because one of the things, like if you have done something wrong in your life at some point, because we didn't all come here perfect and rosy and wonderful and glad, if you've done something wrong, have you noticed how you can have like a, it's almost like your mind is the greatest computer ever created. You can see it like it was yesterday. If you did something wrong, you could have been nine years old, but you see it as clear as day because that's what the enemy wants you to see because he doesn't want you to understand that once you've accepted Jesus, it's in the sea of forgetfulness as far as the Godhead is concerned. But you keep thinking about it because he keeps bringing it back up to you and making you believe it. So this whole thing that I just said, all the enemy is all through that, all up in that. Now, here's the other thing. Regardless of the many miracles that prove Jesus to have the credentials of the Messiah, despite actually seeing him cast out demons, heal every conceivable sickness, and raise people from the dead to life, they would not accept the fact that he was God in human flesh. They got to literally see all of these things happen. They still would not accept him. Instead, they hated him. They hated his message. He was a threat. Here's why they hated him. He was a threat to their power. And they desperately wanted to see him dead. You may find that, 
unfortunately, in a lot of churches. I'm not saying they want to see people dead, but they want to see people moved out of the way because they're in a power struggle. They want to be, you know, they want the light shined on them as they're supposed to be so great. And it's not about any of us. It's all about him. So when it was time for Jesus to select the 12 apostles, you can bet your bottom dollar, he definitely did not choose from the establishment that was so determined to destroy him. He decided after prayer, as we had read, okay, to turn to his own humble followers and selected 12 simple, ordinary, working class men. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, I mean, so when you visit, now this is interesting, because when you visit like the great cathedrals in Europe, or if you don't get to go to Europe, you can open up any book with European, you know, beautiful churches and castles and all the rest of that stuff. What are you going to see? You might assume, really, if you look at how they have things displayed, that the apostles were these larger-than-life stained-glass saints with shining halos who represented an exalted degree of spirituality. I mean, before even doing this, we may have looked at the 12 disciples as these, you know, spiritual giants who were just so marvelous, like, are we ever going to attain what they have done? Hmm. We know, however, through this study, which is why to me it's so exciting, is that they were in fact just common, ordinary men. The sad part is that they are often portrayed in a manner where they are put on pedestals as magnificent marble figures or in paintings as some kind of Roman gods. This dehumanizes them. We must remember that they were just 12 completely ordinary men, perfectly human in every single way, just like you and I. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of William Tyndall who pioneered, and many of you may even have seen Tyndall Bibles or you may have a Tyndall Bible. He pioneered the translation of scripture into English. And he thought it was wrong that common people heard the Bible only in Latin and not in their own language. See, I, like if you go to certain churches, oh man, okay, I'm just gonna finish this thought, let me kinda go. If you go to certain churches, they will still do what they call a mass, and they will still do the mass in Latin. And I always, because I'm always asking these questions, even as a child, I was like, well, why are they going to do this in Latin and nobody knows what they're talking about? Why are we sitting here? And then they make you get up and down. Those little benches were getting to me, even as a child. You know, you got to keep getting up and down on these benches. I don't know what the guy is saying because he's saying it in Latin until I went and took Latin. But still, okay, I just never understood that. Well, this is what William Tyndall felt. And then when we come back, we'll pick up on exactly some more about what he did, because what he did, really all of us can be grateful for, because we are able to read our Bibles and read them in English where we understand them. So we can actually even go back and be very grateful to Mr. Tyndall for what he did. But we'll talk a little bit more about why he did what he did next time we come back. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323.
If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Thanks again for listening. And remember, walk by faith, not by sight.